Thanks for tuning in to WIHI today. If you're interested in learning and working alongside a group of dynamic, collaborative healthcare executives to deliver on the full promise of the IHI Triple Aim, then you should consider joining the IHI Leadership Alliance. The Alliance starts a six-year of in-depth work on October 1, focused on topics that matter most to leading organizations, from improving health equity, to reducing waste, to addressing the opioid crisis. IHI is now accepting new teams. To learn more, please check out IHI.org slash Leadership Alliance or email David Coletta, Executive Director of Strategic Alliances at dcoletta, D-C-O-L-E-T-T-A, at IHI.org. Now, here's WIHI. Health systems are starting to act on their understanding of the significant role social factors play in determining people's health and well-being. This means, among other things, developing strategies beyond the exam room to address issues such as low income and job insecurity in the communities many of these health systems reside in and at their own institutions. Now, some healthcare leaders who are part of IHI's Leadership Alliance and its Equity Work Group are taking steps to raise pay at their health systems, starting with ensuring everyone on staff receives, at minimum, a living wage. We're going to learn how they've gone about this and discuss the dynamic relationship between workforce equity and health equity on this edition of WIHI. And welcome, everyone, to WIHI. We're an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We are offered live and after the show as an archived edition on IHI.org and also as a podcast on Apple Podcasts, among other places. You might want to subscribe. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan, and I am also IHI's Director of Communications. Now, to be sure, workforce equity encompasses more than raising hourly wages, but this act does turn out to be a powerful way for a health system to walk the talk of its commitments to equity overall and to make a tangible difference in people's lives. That's all going to become clearer when you hear from our terrific panel today. Joining us from Arkansas, we have Stefan Mehta. He is Chief Clinical Officer, Interim Chief Executive Officer, and Senior Vice Chancellor for Clinical Programs for the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences Medical Center. For the past decade, Steppy, that's how we'll be referring to him herein, he has worked to create rational and equitable systems of healthcare delivery in rural states. So welcome, Steppy. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Welcome, everybody, this afternoon. Fantastic. On the line from Wisconsin, we have Andrea Werner, and she is a senior vice president for cardiovascular and pulmonology, neurosciences, orthopedics and sports medicine, and pathology and radiology at Bellin Health in Green Bay, Wisconsin. As a senior vice president, Andrea is accountable for all strategic and operational results. Welcome, Andrea. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. And sitting next uh, to Andrea is Kaylin Wietak. She is a talent acquisition specialist for Bellin Health, 
for recruitment. She focuses on the nursing areas for the main hospital and specialty clinics around the greater Green Bay area. Kaylin has been part of the part of the Bellin Health Equity Steering Committee for about two years, and she recently joined forces with the IHI Leadership Alliance uh, and the Health Equity Team, which you're about to hear more about. So welcome, Kaylin. Thank you. It's great to be here. All right. And last but never least, also joining by phone, we have Saranya. Excuse me. I, I wasn't going to do that. Saranya Lair. She heads up innovation for IHI. She leads a team of researchers who explore and test improvement strategies for seemingly intractable impediments to health and healthcare improvement. Saranya also supports select efforts of the IHI Leadership Alliance, including its current work on equity. So welcome to you. Thanks very much. All right. So this is where we're going to start. Saranya, last year, some members of the equity work group in the Leadership Alliance, they completed work on a health equity call to action, committing themselves to, quote, no tolerance of the social inequities that lead to health disparities. So let's start with that as a way to tell us about these expectations and how it gets you to workforce pay. Welcome again. Thanks so much, Madge. And I'll take a step to just briefly mention the Leadership Alliance. I know that the Leadership Alliance's work has been featured on several WIHIs. The Leadership Alliance was created about five years ago. Health system leaders were increasingly coming to IHI and noting that they really wanted a space where they could share, learn, and create together. Forty or so systems came together to form the initial Leadership Alliance, and they made a commitment, and that is to work with one another, as well as with their workforces, their patients, and their communities to deliver on the full promise of the triple aim. They've set about doing this in a lot of different ways. They've developed principles to radically redesign the system. They've been exploring how to take a trillion dollars of waste out of healthcare. They also helped create what has now become a global movement of organizations that are partnering with their staff and uh, patients and uh, providers to think about what rules are worthy of breaking in service of creating better care experiences for patients, providers, and staff. One other feature of the Alliance, which I think is particularly worth mentioning at the moment, is their desire to exercise what they call their collective voice. As health and healthcare-related issues are you know, increasingly occupying the public consciousness, they wanted to create an avenue that allowed them to take their collective insights, experiences, and expertise and channel it in a way that helps shape the national dialogue around health and healthcare. As the Alliance was getting their footing and starting to gain momentum, they would meet in person, they would create these virtual working groups and affinity groups. Issues around equity were increasingly coming up and several Alliance members encouraged the entire Alliance and, and IHI to commit to a more explicit to more explicit equity related inquiry and action. One of those members who you will hear from shortly is Dr. Steppi Mehta. He really championed this uh, for us. He galvanized his fellow members. He, in his, as you'll soon see, his very kind, compelling, and thoughtful way, pushed both the Alliance and also IHI's leadership of the Alliance 
to create a work group specifically focused on health equity. You know, he noted pretty simply that if the mission of the Alliance was to deliver on the full promise of the triple aim, then for the Alliance to have any credibility to that claim, it had to commit to delivering on it on the triple aim for everyone, for all. Um, and doing that wouldn't be possible without achieving health equity. So a subgroup of Alliance members began to meet primarily virtually and a few in-person meetings between the summer and fall of 2017 to create the call to action as you described it, Madge. And in the call to action, there are three core commitments with a few suggested actions uh, underneath each of them. So the first commitment is for organizations and Alliance members to use the power of their individual and collective voice to advocate for equity-focused policies and system change at the local, state, and national level. The second was for the Health Equity Alliance members to use their role as leaders of their own organizations to advance equity-related issues in the workplace. And then the final commitment was to work in partnership with their communities to advance equity. Once they agreed to these, once they agreed to the call to action, I mean, part of the reason they created it was both to guide their own efforts and also to really encourage others in the field to make similar commitments. So after they uh, published the call to action, different members began operationalizing it in their own organizations and in different ways, and then continued to connect so they could share and learn from one another's successes and challenges. Then about eight or nine months ago, several members expressed an interest in continuing to do that important work in their own organizations and in their own ways, and also to perhaps come together and focus on one of those commitments and do some action together around it. And the one that they chose was to work together on the topic of developing recruitment and retention strategies that allowed their workforce to evolve into one that more closely reflected the true demographics of their communities. One of the really exciting things about this work group that was new for the Alliance and certainly new for this work group is one of the core commitments or conditions of participation to be in the work group was that each of the traditional Alliance members that participated had to go to HR and find an HR representative who was willing to partner and champion this work with them and would be willing to participate in the work group uh, with us, given the vital role that HR is going to play in advancing workforce equity. So that's been a really exciting test for us this um, over the past couple months. And I know you'll be hearing, uh, we'll be hearing from Kaylin in a little bit about that. So as they set this, set this aim and this intention that 100% of them are going to make progress towards this, they started with getting a baseline assessment to really understand what their assets and opportunities were. For that, they, you know, we had the opportunity to draw heavily on some phenomenal work that the Democracy Collaborative has done uh, around anchor missions and anchor institutions, and specifically the role of health systems as employers and how that contributes to community wealth building. And so with that, um, I know that Vicky's just put the uh, their free downloadable toolkits into the chat. So with that, Alliance members started to look, the work group members started to look at a couple of different things. They looked at what was, what was the gender and racial makeup of their organization um, at different levels of the organization? And how did that reflect or not reflect the gender and racial makeup of their community? When they thought about um, recruitment strategies, they looked at the zip codes where their staff 
currently live and the zip codes where people apply. They looked at the job descriptions uh, or job applications and tried to say, are there any unnecessary requirements here that aren't critical to the role, but their inclusion in a job application might deter folks from applying? They also looked at what systems were in place to retain employees once they were actually hired. They used the MIT living wage calculator to determine what percent of their staff were not making at least the minimum living wage. They looked at whether their policies were about tuition advancement or whether they were tuition reimbursement, whether they allowed for paid time off for uh, employees to participate in trainings, how their 401ks were structured. They looked at a lot, of, a lot of different things and that allowed each of the members of the work group to identify where, what were they doing really well that they could then share with the rest of us and where would they initially want to focus? And so with, I'll turn things back to you now to hear where some of these folks wanted to focus on tackling uh, the living wage issue right away. Thank you so much, uh, Saranya. And um, uh, Vicki put in the chat the link uh, to learn more about this living wage calculator. It is something that many, many folks are using. Uh, maybe Vicki can also find it. There's an interesting article in the New York Times that I shared with her. Oh, whoops, I'm surprising her. Okay, we'll find that link uh, that discusses uh, ways to uh, sort of a, brings out a little more context about the living wage. And we're going to hear also from our systems uh, on the show today how they're also working uh, within the notion of a regional living wage, uh, which is uh, part of what becomes their goal line. So thanks, Sarinia, and we'll get into more details now. I'm going to turn to Steppi and Andrea, uh, Arkansas and uh, Wisconsin, respectively. So the first question I want to ask both of you, first Steppi and then Andrea, uh, just quickly, and then we'll, we'll go back, we'll now, then we'll get into what you actually did. One thing I would imagine that many people on the call uh, today are wondering is, how did you get buy-in uh, from your organizations to uh, head in that direction of workforce pay and no less raising wages and uh, noting living wage uh, as your goalpost? Uh, Steppy, first you. Sure. Thanks, Madge. A great question. There were really two compelling issues that I, as a senior member member of the senior leadership team could bring to others that were um, absolutely necessary to, to drive this. The, the first was the, the data that 10% of our workforce, after doing this baseline assessment, seeing that 10% of our workforce, over 1,000 employees, were making below the living wage for central Arkansas where, where Little Rock resides. Uh, and just to put this into context, until January 1, 2019, the minimum wage for Arkansas was $7.50 an hour. Uh, with the election in November of 2018, there was a citizens referendum passed to get the minimum wage up to, I think it was $11.50, but not until 2025. On January 1, 2015, that, or 2019, the 
minimum wage went up to $8.50 an hour, a pretty far cry from the living wage, 1,000 employees making less than that. Putting that in front of our senior leadership team, including the, the chancellor, our chief nursing officer, our human resources director, was a, a pretty eye-opening, jaw-dropping moment for everyone. Uh -huh. the, the second component of this it was that we have competing organizations within Little Rock and the Central Arkansas area who were paying $14 an hour or more as a starting wage, including Walmart and, and other non-healthcare employees, employers, uh, which were taking um, employees away, away from us. We recognize a very large high turnover rate, which was uh, troublesome to us. So it wasn't too hard to show that there was a real problem, both from a moral and a, a financial, economic, operational uh, issue. Okay, thank you. I appreciate uh, I appreciate uh, your kicking that off in that way. And um, I'm going to uh, now turn to um, Andrea, and I guess just uh, kind of briefly, and then we'll get into each of you kind of the meat of what went on in your organizations. Uh, a big hurdle to persuade your organization to move in this direction? Well, I, our journey is, is interesting, and a lot of it um, is mission-centric. I mean, we really strive that for all persons to be able to achieve triple aim results, um, all, all in caps. And there were three things that harmonically converged to create this three-legged stool of, of curiosity. One was the IHI white paper um, about health equity. The other was participating in the Leadership Alliance Health Equity Team. And the third thing, uh, which is where um, we really dug into the living wage and which motivated us, was working with IHI on the poverty um, reduction community-based Northeastern Wisconsin initiative called POINT. And we were really looking at um, the contribution of medical debt um, to people going into bankruptcy and, and ultimately poverty. And our CEO at the time, um, our CEO now, Chris Walesky, who was COO then, and our um, chief um, financial officer at the time, Jim Dietschy, start, actually started to look at the percent of our own employees that we sent to collections because that was our metric for our point work. We thought if we can prevent people from going into collections and going into medical debt, we can impact poverty. Well, they actually said, wow, I wonder if we are sending our own employees into collections. And lo and behold, we were shocked. Um, and we did have employees who received their health care from us and worked for us that were, were going into medical debt, um, basically being put into medical debt by their, their employer. And of course, this did not sit well with us against um, our mission and our vision. So that led us to start to look at um, the concept of the living wage. And I thank Steffi for his leadership because he introduced us into this topic. Um, and, and that really is what started us on our journey of evaluating the percent of our employees that made a living wage and the percent that didn't. Okay. Thank you. I uh, appreciate that. All right. We're doing some scene setting now. And uh, all right, what I'd like to do uh, again is uh, let's go into some of the assessments and decision making. And uh, actually, I'm going to go back to you, uh, Steppy, and we'll get up some of your other slides here about the region in which uh, you're working and your health system resides. 
And uh, let, let's start talking about uh, sort of how, how you dive into this. I'm sure the audience is really wondering how you, where do you begin and how do you, uh, you're talking about assessments. Uh, you also, of course, always have the picture of what's the state uh, of the region in terms of health and income. Go ahead, Steppy. Sure. Well, the, just for saying that the, the context for everybody, Arkansas is a somewhat a, a southern state, somewhat of a midwestern state. Uh, it is uh, sparsely populated with three million people. Little Rock is right smack dab in the center of the state and is sort of at the dividing point between the southeast part of the state, which is the Mississippi and Arkansas River Delta, largely rural, uh, agricultural, very poor, very sparse access to health care, largely um, African-American in ethnicity compared to the northwest part of the state, which is much more affluent, more educated, uh, less diverse, more access to, to health care. Little Rock is the center of the state, home of the state capital, and UAMS, which is the only tertiary care and academic medical center in the state. We have a significant responsibility, we stated in our mission statement, that we are here for improving the health, health care, and well-being of all our Kansans, uh, yet we uh, live in a state with tremendous health disparities based on social inequities, health equity issues. We created a health equity steering committee uh, through the provocation of our work with the uh, Alliance. and created five work groups to begin tackling the what felt like a large universe of, of health equity issues. Uh, a clinical work group, community partnership, education data, and workforce. We had done the assessment and saw the real opportunity with um, our employees being pretty impoverished, at least the, the lower 10% of our employee workforce. And just to give you a, an illustration, a little bit of color about this, that, that there were many employees, people that I would see in the hall every day, who work in food services whose only hot meal of the day, maybe their only meal of the day, was their gratis meal at, in our cafeteria. They were that, that destitute. And we were party as an organization to perpetuating uh, poverty. Uh, so it, it didn't take long for our health equity steering committee to realize that we had better start within, that we would not have any credibility with our surrounding communities. We would never be able to act as an anchor organization within our communities. We might not even have the understanding or expertise to work on health equity without making sure that our own house was in order. So it wasn't too hard to figure out that we had better spend our and energy on making sure that we paid attention to diversity, inclusion, and equity issues uh, within UAMS. So we are now looking on the screen uh, about the AIM statement here. And I know uh, this is something that multiple organizations within the Leadership Alliance and within the Equity Work Group uh, have these that they're uh, trying to, you know, hold true to and are different stages of this. 
Uh, you mentioned already the discovery of 10% of the workforce uh, being below the regional uh, living wage. Um, so now we have your AIM statement. It's not October yet, <laughs> but we've got, um, you're, you're well on your way. So tell us how it's going. And I also want to uh, put up here, although I don't want to confuse everybody, uh, you do have a really terrific driver diagram um, about the whole process. This is the kind of stuff where if we had four hours on the phone with everybody, we could go into. But I do. it's yours for downloading, everyone. And, Steffi, if you want to refer to that in any way, uh, maybe I should have put these in reverse, how, you, how this got you to that wonderful AIM statement, um, please do. Well, we, we created the AIM statement first, saying that we were going to do this. We were going to commit to ourselves and to our colleagues in the, the Leadership Alliance to, by 2020, October 1 of 2020, getting 100% of our employees to at least the living wage for the region, $14 an hour. Um, uh, I'll give you the, the punchline that we were able to achieve that a year and a half faster than we thought we were going to. By April 1 of 2019, we were able to, to do that because of convergence of institutional will being there. Pretty easy to convince leadership that this was something that we needed to do, but also importantly, figuring out their pragmatic aspects of how, number one, how were we going to afford this? How were we going to fit this into the budget? Not just on a one-time basis, but in a sustained fashion. Uh, number two, to make sure that this was reflective of an institutional long-term sustainable commitment to equity within the uh, with that within UMS. And thirdly, something unique to us, since we're a state-supported institution, our classified employees, those those employees making at the lower end of the pay scale, their pay was determined by state statute. So we needed to go to state and agencies to petition that we were different than um, our, our ability to keep high qualified, highly educated and loyal um, employees uh, that we had to pay at a different scale than other state employees. So we, we needed some legislative work to get this done. Uh, but happily, there was a convergence of a pretty compelling business uh, argument for doing so. The moral argument really we talked about is pretty apparent. And through our legislative liaison, we got the approval uh, well in advance of our committed deadline, uh, October 1, 2020, to uh, change the pay scale for our employees. Fantastic. Okay. Well, we'll uh, I hope everyone who's listening will uh, be thinking of some questions. We'll come back to all this. Uh, I want to go to Andrea and Kaylin now and to help us uh, understand what has happened uh, at, at Bellin. So uh, take it away and we'll uh, get some of your slides up there as well. I'm sorry, I sort of snuck in before the, uh, <laughs> the earlier one uh, about just a little profile of Bellin Health um, and the people in the region. Uh, but I wonder if I, maybe what I should do, even as you're speaking, is put up your organizational uh, diversity uh, thing as well. Does that make sense, Andrea? Sure. There's a couple of similarities um, in Steppy's story and our journey here at Bellin. 
Um, I think one is is that in in just overall opening up, um, looking under the covers with health equity, the white paper from the IHI on achieving health equity was very helpful to us because at the back there's there's an assessment, and we did that assessment at various levels of the organization from the board of directors um, to frontline staff. And from that, we were able to do an opportunity assessment, I'll say that versus a gap assessment because it sounds more positive, where we could look at where our challenges were. And a health equity steering team was created, and I have an awesome group of people to work with. And we created an overall aim, which really surrounds around improving the health and well-being of every person in our region by eliminating disparities in our pursuit of the triple aim for all. Um, and within that overall aim are several different drivers. And, and the, what we're talking about with a living wage fits into one. And we have a work plan um, addressing all of those drivers. But the other similarity to what Steffi had said was, you know, there were also stories that started to bother us. You know, as a leadership team, we heard stories about people in our housekeeping department who, um, you know, where their, their coworkers were having to help them and people on the surgery team helping them um, rise up from a really unfortunate situation that caused significant uh, financial stress. And, you know, that, just like Steffi said, you know, we felt that we were perpetuating a problem. So in addition to doing, looking at the data and doing, an analysis, we also had stories within our own population, our own family at Bellin that really motivated us to address this. Um, so we decided to take it a step further by looking at, at that number. So using um, the, the calculators to figure out what is the local living wage here in Green Bay and the regions um, of which we have employees. And then, you know, what percent of our employees, you know, don't meet that living wage. And it's not as high of a percentage as what Steffi is dealing with. The first time that we looked at the data, we found that 1.9% of our employees were not earning a living wage. And um, recently now it's increased a little bit to 2.1%. Um, so, you know, that, that is a, a significant portion of the population um, for those employees who are, who are not earning that living wage. It makes a big difference to them. All right, let's put up the other slide. So here we are uh, with uh, where you're headed, and are you on uh, track? <laughs> Kaylin, do you want to talk a little bit about what we're looking at here? Absolutely. So um, by December of 2019, or December 31st of 2019, um, our goal is to make sure that our employees are at least making the living minimum wage for um, our region. So the role really of HR is to obviously identify all of those employees that are currently um, below that living wage, which is 1113 for our area, and then um, figuring out the cost of what it would um, take to get everybody up to that living wage. So there's a couple different things that we need to look at because there are, um, you know, the employees that are in those specific job codes that may fall under that living wage. There may be, um, a lot of them could be, you know, students or interns. Um, they could be kind of on a limited term basis if they're just here for the summer or breaks. Um, but also some of the employees are full-time working, so it is something that we need to consider as well. Um, we do also have to look at when we're identifying the cost, is it something that we can do 
right now or is it something that we need to do in stages? Um, obviously, that's a huge thing of where, um, you know, where the money is going to come from in order to do this um, big initiative. Um, and then we obviously also, HR understands that, yes, we are moving a certain group of pay scales, but we are also, it's, um, you know, closing the gap really between other pay scales that we have within the system. So we need to make sure that there is still an equal um, an equal gap between that and um, making sure that the whole system is looked at, not just those that are under that living wage. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Kaylin. Uh, talk about your role uh, in HR. Sarina said at the very top here, uh, kind of a new step uh, for some work within the Leadership Alliance, which was asking everybody to get somebody from HR engaged and a partner in this work. Can you describe what that has looked like for you at, at Bellin and uh, what what value you attach to that? Yeah, absolutely. So I am also a member of our health equity team here at Bellin, and I really am bringing everything back to um, my director, and we are running reports, um, figuring out, you know, obviously all the meat of what is necessary for in order to make this happen. Um, so it's not just myself. Um, I do actually have another team um, that I work with within HR um, that we are able to, you know, really tackle down and get all of that information that is needed to do this. Mm -hmm. How transparent a process is it uh, for the organization as a whole, when particularly when you're in the midst of it all and sort of gathering up uh, initially kind of more raw data, excuse me, raw data, uh, making certain decisions, et cetera. Is that a fairly transparent process? This is Andrea, absolutely. Transparency is one of the number one qualities of leadership, and um, we are a transparent organization. And it's interesting because uh, the concept of living rage, the concept of equity, the concepts of um, equality versus the difference between that and equity all plays into this. And, and in order to help people and empower them to understand um, the reason why we need to pay a living wage takes a lot of communication and a lot of conversation. Um, and so we've had to wrestle with questions like, um, difficult questions around um, people just, there's a difference between not making a living wage and not making um, enough to do what you maybe want to do, like, buy a car or, you know, there's a difference between what people need to exist and what people want to have. And so a lot of discussion and, and education on this, um, conversations at our senior leadership team, um, conversations at our strategy day aways, where we have all leaders in the organization um, learning about this because it will take um, everybody to contribute to the success of this initiative in terms of helping people understand the why. You know, why is it that we want our employees all to make a living wage? You know, that's a very powerful moment. Mm hmm absolutely. Um, and I hope folks listening uh, want, you know, uh, have some thoughts about that, how they would answer that. 
uh, even in their own organizations. Steffi, before we go to chat, um, just talk about the role of HR uh, in your efforts uh, as well. Ellen, uh, HR was really crucial uh, for, for us in getting this work done and in such a timely and efficient manner. The chief human resources officer was my, my partner in this. It took no effort to convince him of the need to do so, again, both from a, a moral argument as well as something that just made sense from a, from a business case for retention purposes, for inclusion, to improve engagement. So they really brought to us all those quantitative issues that were required to bring the argument to the senior leadership group. So knowing just the number of employees, what they were being paid, where they were in that hierarchy of, of uh, payment, where there are opportunities for career advancement. Uh, HR has the big picture in mind and a uh, quantitative understanding also of, of the market. They also really helped me uh, and the, the senior leadership group understand the, the connection between engagement and where somebody was on the, the, the pay scale. There is a pretty significant correlation be, between them. HR also helped us create a, a turnover cost calculator. Yeah, let me show that one, us, okay. Yeah, which helped, helped us make the, the business case argument that we were able to show that, in, in this illustration, it's, it's for nurses, uh, but we apply this for, for every level of, of employee, as somewhere between one quarter and 50% of an employee's annual wage uh, was could be um, targeted towards replacement costs. So in this illustration for replacing 190 nurses who left the organization, that, that was a cost in 2017 of $4.5 million. So when we did the, the, the calculation using uh, this calculator, which by the way, we, we erred on the side of being conservative because we did not want to overstate the, the cost case, uh, we were able to demonstrate that if we reduce the turnover rate, that we would almost pay for the difference to the institution of bringing in 1,000 employees up from about $8.50 to $14 an hour. So having that kind of a quantitative tool or demonstration to put in front of the board, in front of the, the chancellor, in front of our finance people certainly helped make the argument a lot easier to implement. Thanks. All right, I'm waiting for folks to get in on the, the chat. I do see one uh, question and comment. And I guess, Steffi, while we're waiting for maybe a few more to get up there, um, tell us how all this has been received by staff, those maybe directly affected uh, by wage increase and maybe others. Yeah, it, I've been at UAMS for a little over four years, and I have not seen this kind of, of 
um, correlative benefit to morale in the four years I've, I've been here. UAMS came off of a, a pretty difficult financial year in 2018. And despite that, we were able to give this way overdue uh, gift in a way, uh, but really just um, equity or justification or um, uh, finally pay employees what they should be getting, um, or at least approaching it. Uh, there were these testimonials or examples. I, I ran into a, a woman who worked in food services for 20 years, and she was dancing up and down in the elevator, and she knew who I was, and I asked her why she was happy, uh, why she was dancing, and she said, now I feel that I finally belong to UAMS after 20 years because of the recognition of how poorly we were paying her, and not that getting her to $14 an hour uh, is sufficient, but sufficient enough for her to feel that kind of inclusion. Mm -hmm. Another employee was heard to say, now I don't have to work three jobs anymore. I can just work on this one job and spend more time with my, my family. So those, those, those individual stories were, were pretty potent. I also have to say that, that the higher paid people in my organization, the physicians, all of whom are employed and, and make you know, multiple of times what the lower paid employees do, their, their expression was pretty much as a group, well, it's about time. And they recognized that the, the money going into paying 1,000 people a little bit better might come out of not their being able to have a raise. And that was not ever an issue. It was UAMS is finally behaving like it should and valuing all employees. So that there was universal joy, sigh of relief, or saying, finally, we're doing what we need to be doing. So it, it's very gratifying and it's it's paying off in spades in terms of morale and even um, engagement. Thank you, Steppy. Uh, there is a... Um a person here in the chat very moved by all of this and wondering about how you might have featured some of these stories uh, and how even doing how to do it in such a way that would be respectful uh, given the power and a lot of folks needing to hear them. Hold that thought for a moment and maybe I'll even ask uh, Bellin uh, if uh, you have anything sort of like that in terms of testimonials or, or what you got back from staff uh, in terms of the impact of this. Uh, Andrea? Yes, absolutely. So, you know, I would just, I'll share a couple of examples. I think that um, through the work on um, equity, the, the concept of financial health um, has been, been very, very um, interesting for us to learn about and highlight and We've done quite a bit of tests of change with um, educational platforms and empowerment platforms for employees and community members to understand the connection of um, the finances and overall health and well-being. And so, so that has resonated, that angle, so to speak, of financial well-being and financial health is something that applies to 
our employees, our patients, our community members, um, and, and people have really grasped onto that. Um, the first time that I presented um, this concept in front of our leaders at our, one of our quarterly strategy meetings, when I presented the overall equity work and highlighted this, and just as the person presenting it, um, there was a round of applause in, in the room. Um, so, so people are very proud that we are looking at paying all of our employees a living wage. Um, and the second time this was discussed at a meeting, and, and, and I got her permission to share this, but our leader of housekeeping stood up at the end of the meeting and expressed her gratitude to the point of tears because a lot of the people that don't earn a living wage are her employees, and she talked about just watching the struggles um, every day and, and, and how this, what we're doing as an organization will alleviate so much unnecessary pain um, for those particular particular employees. And on the, the, the side of folks who make well above a living wage, you know, like, like our medical staff, and we are so blessed here with an incredible medical staff, I actually think that a lot of the conversations I've had with, with folks, they're shocked to, uh, to even um, learn that, that we have so many employees who struggle because it's really hidden. Um, it's not obvious, you know, that, that there are what, how much money people make and don't make. And our caregivers are so dedicated to our patients, um, you know, that, that they come to work despite the hardships that they're experiencing, and, and we might not see what's really happening. Thank you. And yet, uh, I was thinking, uh, Andrea and uh, Kaylin and Steppy and Saranya, that it's one of those things that's sort of hiding, but if you go looking uh, for it, uh, then it's not hidden so much anymore. And uh, I'm wondering, Saranya, what impact has this work at uh, in Arkansas and Wisconsin had on some of the other systems in the work group uh, also trying to move in this direction. Thanks, Madge. You know, you, I think you hit the nail on the head. It's, we, you may not know until you start to look, but it is, it is right there and the data is right there and that, that living wage calculator that MIT created makes it really easy to be able to find that data. And then obviously partnerships with HR as both Seppi and Andrea had made that, made it, made it pretty simple to really understand quite quickly, what percent of your employees weren't making a living wage. There are several other members of the of the equity work group that are working on this. So as I think Steph, the, the examples between UAMS and Bellin were great because they shared how actually addressing the issue may be different depending on which organization you are you are a part of. UAMS had to to work you know, in a legislative and a policy way versus Bellin, which had um, a different set of systems and processes to go through. So there are several other members of this work group that are also working on addressing a living wage and others, uh, as they looked at the entire baseline assessment, maybe felt that other areas were more pressing at the moment. And so they've started there. The other thing is, as Steppy and Andrea and Kaylin and others are sharing their stories, it just got people thinking. Uh, when we shared this work uh, with the entire Leadership Alliance, which is over 40 systems in the United States, you could see the light bulb go off and you could, you notice sort of during the breaks and, and uh, you know, in the evening receptions, people sending emails are saying, you know, I just, I just reached out to my HR director to say, to find out if we, uh, if we have any percent of our employees that are not making living wage. 
the benefit, I think, for the alliance is it's comprised of leaders. And so these are leaders who understand that they not only have the power to set policies and, and principles, but they can also change them. Um, and I think you've, I think both Steppy and Andrea have demonstrated what that leadership can look like in, in two of these organizations. And I know several other alliance organizations and truly anyone on this call can go to the living wage calculator, which is which is free, can look into that and seek to change that within their own organizations using some of the insights and experiences with the qualitative and quantitative uh, data that you've heard uh, today and and several others. And I would I would recommend the Democracy Collaborative Toolkit around uh, the employers and the anchor institution network, because I think that provides a lot of other really good examples and tools and resources for organizations interested in pursuing this. Thank you. A couple of things from the chat. Uh, Steppy, maybe I'll have uh, you, uh, if you wanted to say, if has it been uh, feasible to share some of these stories uh, with the organization as a whole? And has that helped perhaps generate more stories? Yes, as as is Bella, and we we are transparent. We hold town halls, and some of these testimonials have been brought brought forth. That said, I have talked to several people, both within our community and across the country, and have asked the question why we have not not. Uh, spoken up more about this, where, why we have not illustrated what we've done here as both an example of what can be done and a provocation for other organizations uh, to do this, the same. So you know, we, on, on the one hand, wanted not to be too loud about this. Uh, we have to be a little bit careful being the state organization that we are, that uh, we're not overdoing the, the sort of the, the marketing of, of this. On the other hand, it's such important work that, that I think it is important. So we, we will do so. Um, but those stories being told here within UNMS's walls uh, resonate well. We have other testimonials that have been put up on, on the walls or on our internet site. And uh, there's, a lot of a lot of joy. Um, I'll, I'll say I'll just add that that um, no one here is saying that living wage is is the last thing that we do. This this is the first step in our equity journey. Uh, it's the first step in creating better inclusion. And one other thing, perhaps, when talking to some community members testing them out, they, they've heard of it. They, their, their initial response was, well, something like it's about time, maybe we can start to trust UMS as a good community partner, which was illustration to me that we, we have a long way to go in how we treat our employees and partner with our communities. But it is such an important first step and important to, to, to demonstrate to others. Absolutely, and thank you for uh, conveying it. Uh, Andrea, let me flip this back to you, and then maybe Steppy can wade in as well. A couple of questions having to do with uh, um, kind of wage bans uh, and uh, kind of other ways that uh, raising 
uh, the level of pay uh, for those making the lowest wages in the organization, how that might impact or if it's impacted sort of wage bans for anybody above that. Somebody also wanted to know whether or not what how will those folks who now got this jump uh, uh, be evaluated in, in the next time uh, they're up for any kind of a performance review or pay raise? So uh, that may be rushing ahead of the story, uh, but uh, uh, Andrea, let me start with you. Um, you might be seeing these in the chat as well. Yeah, yeah, I was, and, and it's interesting. I'll comment, and then Caitlin can this is why it's so awesome to have an HR partner, um, you know, versus a, a senior leader who loves to think strategically. <laughs> and you hope that strategy meets reality in real time, but, you know, sometimes it, 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 there's a little push-pull and a little tension there. So, you know, in, it, of course, we, everybody would like to, to make more money. Everybody, most people would like to be paid fairly, and, and many people think that they should be paid more. And what I've been trying to do is help people understand there is a difference between a living wage, making enough money to survive, um, and a difference between, you know, a competitive wage in the marketplace or what everybody defines as fair. And this is my, this is my opinion. Um, and so, you know, for me, in, in my mind, I think, well, the goal is, the scope of this is getting people to be paid a living wage, the people who are not, having them be paid a wage upon which they can live. Um, now, HR, of course, has the role of thinking of all the things that Andrea doesn't, and that's all those questions that, that are going into the chat. And we just had a meeting last week with um, Kaylin, myself, the director of HR, and two other wonderful um, HR folks who, who work on pay increases and all these things because in December is when we want to make this happen. And all these things came up. So you do have to wrestle as an organization with, what, okay, what does this mean, if anything, for everybody else? What does this mean um, uh, for living wage, if the living wage changes next year? What does it mean um, if you cascade this um, to all people? You know, should all employees get a bump because we're bumping people for the living wage? And I think that um, it's a good arm wrestling like that needs to occur between all these different worlds because we, we have to be able to attract and retain employees and, and we have to be able to be compliant with, um, you know, the, the world of, of human resources. And, but, yeah, we have to be able to be equitable and fair um, and be able to meet the, what we're trying to accomplish here, which is, which is fixing the living wage. So, um, you know, Kaylin maybe can comment on just some of the scenarios that, that the group there in HR has been playing with. Yeah. So, Kaylin, uh, why don't you give us one or two, uh, and and then uh, I'm just seeing we're getting close to the top of the hour, just like me to also bring up uh, big issues towards the top. I think people are just getting going. But, yes, one or two scenarios of what you're thinking about uh, uh, before we have to slowly wind down. Go ahead. Yep, and it's not, I mean, this is something that is obviously not going to just happen overnight. Um, there's a lot of different models that um, we are pulling together, for, um, you know, completely system-wide and those that are um, just in those certain pay, um, pay scales that are not making that. So um, it's just, you know, it's a matter of just looking at all models and seeing which direction we're able to go. 
Okay. Well, this all argues, of course, for us returning to this uh, topic uh, as this plays out, because that's what's going to happen. It's going to play out, and there's going to be more innovation, I am confident. Uh, and that's part of the reason we're also re- reminding you of the Leadership Alliance and uh, an opportunity that you might also have uh, to get engaged uh, with this work. Uh, Steppy, uh, Saranya messaged me that... Uh, you maybe you've uh, confronted this issue about sort of the bump effect of <laughs> this has year on year, but also uh, in terms of wage bans. Anything you want to add to that? Yeah, uh, well, two things. We, we recognize the, the wage compression for those employees making just above $14 an hour. And we have a, a year strategy for taking care of that. Most of those affected, we were able to. Um, accommodate at the same time. So relatively few employees are, are feeling perhaps the, the unfairness for their own compensation, but with a commitment to making that up over the, the next year. Second thing is that we just finished our 10-year strategic plan. We baked into the plan that our employees uh, must make a minimum of a living wage and that it must be reassessed at least once a year, and that the 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 accountability, including the compensation of our senior HR team, is dependent on making sure that that happens. So we at least we have something baked into strategic planning and an accountability performance evaluation process for our senior leadership to make sure that it happens. Okay. Well, again, I hope we get back to this uh, topic uh, in some months down the road here and see how things have continued uh, to evolve. Uh, I think uh, Sarnia has her mind on getting some things written about this work, also as a way of uh, trying to disseminate the learning. Uh, So we'll look forward to that as well. In the meantime, I want to thank today's audience uh, for your interest in this topic, and I want to uh, definitely a uh, big thank you to our panels, uh, Stefan uh, Mehta, uh, Andrea Werner, we had Kaylin Wietak and Sarah Nielair, and um, really, and you, our audience, kind of adding your insights. I do hope you'll tell others about this work, uh, about the broadcast, find it as a podcast, uh, and thank you for also checking out the Leadership Alliance, uh, which might be something that's a good fit uh, for your program. Next Next up on WIHI in August, we're going to be talking about black women and maternal care, redesigning for safety, dignity, and respect. And that information goes live on our website shortly, uh, so check it out. Uh, reminder, you can download this chat when you get off the program today. You can also get the slides. Uh, you can also find it on our website uh, tomorrow uh, if you've got a dash. And any questions whatsoever, you can email info at IHI.org. Great group of people help make WIHI possible, and they include Matt Morse, Vicki Minden, Joanna Carmona, Mo Berry, Val Weber, and Pat McTiernan, and many others. And I want to say special thanks to Saranya and the IHI Leadership Alliance for helping me shape today's program. As always, it's my privilege to host this program that's about spirited learning and improving health and patient care most of all. So for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day, everyone.
Thanks for tuning in to WIHI today. If you're interested in learning and working alongside a group of dynamic, collaborative healthcare executives to deliver on the full promise of the IHI Triple Aim, then you should consider joining the IHI Leadership Alliance. The Alliance starts a six-year of in-depth work on October 1, focused on topics that matter most to leading organizations, from improving health equity, to reducing waste, to addressing the opioid crisis. IHI is now accepting new teams. To learn more, please check out IHI.org slash Leadership Alliance or email David Coletta, Executive Director of Strategic Alliances at dcoletta, D-C-O-L-E-T-T-A, at IHI.org.